Well, I think it's kind of fun in this season that we get to um, take a bit of a break for what we were doing uh, as, and to look at a different section of Scripture uh, now that we are in the Advent season. And so we are taking a break from um, where we have been in the book of Romans and we're spending this these weeks in December looking at the narrative of Christ's birth as we separate it as it comes in the book of Matthew. As we do this, which is more than just an exercise of rehearsing the story again and again and again, but it is as we rehearse the things that have already occurred, uh, the things that come from the past, these equip us in a unique way to be able to look forward, to be able to anticipate what's coming, and particularly to bolster our faith as we are walking to what we anticipate coming, but through all of the unknowns that we have in our lives. So we get to pick up uh, the first part of the narrative aspect of this section. We looked at Jesus' genealogy last week when Adam was here preaching that um, Jesus comes with the lineage that we need through a very crazy and often confusing family. And so we get to jump in here um, and start to unpack the account of his birth and think a little bit about what that means for us today. So let's turn to the passage. You have it here in your worship folder, if you would like it. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And when Joseph, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again that you would come and work through your word, that you would be with me in my words, that they would be true, and that they would be helpful, and you would be with all of us in our hearts as we seek to apply and to grapple with what you have given us uh, to reveal yourself to us. We pray that through your Spirit that you would take effect deeply in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that we are in this Advent season and we're coming up on Christmas time, I've been thinking a lot, and I wonder if you have had this thought, especially when you became an adult, and that is, I wish I could remember what was the first year when Christmas became, when the day ended, that there was just a little bit of relief afterwards, instead of the excitement um, that it always was growing up. Because, you know, when you're growing up and you're a kid, the day after Christmas is one of the saddest days of the year. Everything's opened. All of the surprises have gone away. And now you're looking at 365 days until it comes around again. 
But something changes. There's some point along the way where that changes uh, when you become an adult. And that is where Christmas used to be a time when you just receive and receive on end, then you have to be the one to provide for everybody else. You have to buy gifts. You have to go to all of the parties. You have to figure out parent, uh, family, travel plans, all of these things. There are a lot of things that have to be managed in order to get through the season. And then when you finally make it to that point, it was fun, it was a special time of year, and there's a little bit of a breath that you get to breathe um, rather than the excitement, rather than the sadness um, that you might have remembered before. And this is, I think this is just descriptive about what it means to grow up. And that when you grow up, then there is a whole lot of life that used to be taken care of for you, that you got to let go by passively, that now you are responsible for, and that you have to manage, that you have to take care of. There are decisions that have to be made. There's work that has to be done. Um, There are so many details that have to be thought about and carefully maintained to make sure nothing falls apart. I think as we do that, um, that that's part of, that is part of um, becoming an adult. But as we do that and we feel what that is like, then often something will happen that will throw the whole thing off. We are learning and we feel like we've got it all together. We are hold, keeping all the plates up. Then something comes along that was not expected and that we feel is way beyond our age to be able to take care of. Um, that is way beyond our pay grade or experience level. And what it does is it sends us into a state of crisis. Or, as I like to think, um, it throws off our groove. The Emperor's New Groove was one of my favorite movies growing up. And the whole first sequence was, hey man, you threw off the Emperor's Groove and you have to be removed. Beware of the emperor's groove. And I think that's kind of like us. Some of us have a deeper groove than others. Some of us, it is more like a rut. Um, And it is stressful whenever we are pushed to a level where we feel like we we cannot manage this um, the way that it needs to be managed. And so where we're left is this, is we end up walking around, we go about our existence, and we are anxious about many things. We're trying to hold everything up. We sit here in these seats. Um, In some ways, we commiserate together, but in many ways, we are just all in the same spot trying to hide what we know is going on deep down, that we can't manage it all. We don't know what to do. We feel out of our depth, and we are just desperately trying to hold everything together. I think we all have that in common as we approach this um, passage this morning. And so I think whether we are here um, with trust in the Bible or whether we're just curious what it might has to say, I think we're all looking to say, in this reality, is there anything that is useful for us that the Bible might have to say that is actually encouraging, um, that might be helpful, comforting, um, rather than something that feels like something far away and distant. 
So here's what I want to do this morning in, in tackling that issue. Um, I want to tell you two stories, two stories of crisis that are going to come from the Bible. Um, I'll just explain them to you and see what happens. Um, second, I just want to give two reflections on crisis. Um, how in thinking about those, uh, what are we led to consider in them as we look at these stories? And then last, we're going to look at the one king of crisis. And I'm going to mean that in both senses of it. The king who brings crisis and the king who is with us in crisis. So that's where we're going. First of all, two stories about crisis. And they're both in this passage, but one we're going to have to go uh, a long way back. So this is like, um, there's a lot of drama in the Bible, if you know where to look and know how to pay attention. That when, it, when we get this quote here in verse 23, then this is essentially what happens in Lord of the Rings, where this ring shows up, and then you get a montage that goes back, you know, hundreds of years ago, then something else happened. So we're going to go back to the 8th century B.C., and there's a guy named Ahaz who was the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. There were two kingdoms that used to be one that is split, one in the south and one in the north. And this guy named Ahaz came to be king, and he was new. So he, he is kind of coming into this role of what it means to be a king and learning how to manage a whole kingdom. But there's a threat on the horizon. Um, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III, and it would make my life if somebody would um, name one of their children Tiglath-Pileser. You know, this is my child's Betty, John, and Tiglath-Pileser, my third child. I just, I've always loved that name. Um, he is a, a warrior from the kingdom of Assyria, which is taking ground, and they're becoming famous. Reports are coming down into Israel that this is a foe that can't be reckoned with, and it'll only be a matter of time until we're doomed. And so that's stressful enough. But in response to that, the northern kingdom of Israel and a neighboring, a neighboring kingdom called Aram, those kings band together, and they come down to the southern kingdom to try to take over Ahaz so they can recruit him so that they can go up north and repel the Assyrians' Um, from taking over their land. So here's another threat. This is like a World War II situation going on where everybody's um, declaring war and everybody else. So Ahaz, trying to do his best to manage the empire, he comes up with a plan, and that is he goes to Tiglath-Pileser III and says, these guys are trying to take over me so that we can battle you, so why don't you come and lead with me and we can repel them and um, I'll do whatever you want. And he erects idols to the Assyrians um, in the temple, and he pays him with a lot of gold from the temple, and it is a situation that is falling apart. In the middle of this situation, then God sends a prophet to Ahaz, and he tells them, he tells him, who is trying to work all this out in devious ways, ask for a sign, and I will give you a sign to bolster your faith so that you can lead these people in faithfulness. And Ahaz, rather than responding to this, rather than noticing his own lack of faith and asking for it to be bolstered from God, he pretends to be pious and says, it would be inappropriate for me to ask for a sign from the Lord, so I'll, I'll let that go. 
So I'm a righteous, pious guy, and I'm on my way to have a meeting with Tiglath-Pileser III to work this whole thing out. So what we have here is a guy who is in crisis, a guy who has the treasure trove of what it means to be a part of the people of God. There's a history of intervention from the Lord, of protection, where he has and a direct invitation to respond and trust to him. And he says, I'll hear you. I'll put that in my pocket. I'll put on my best pious face. And then I'm going to go do whatever I need to do uh, to take care of this situation. That's actually where this verse comes from. Um, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. So because where Ahaz is concerned with saving his own backside only, and he turns away the help of the Lord, then God comes in and he says, okay, guess what? You're only concerned with yourself. I am concerned with the line of my people. And I'm going to give you a prophecy that is going to tell you that I am never going to give up on the success of my people even though they will be wiped out for a time, taken off into exile and discipline, I will always be there with them. I will end up saving them in the end, and I will fulfill all of my promises to them. This will happen. Now it is up to you. If you are going to jump on that bandwagon, or if you're going to go your own way and reap the consequences that are to come. That's one story. That's where this verse comes from. And now we get to fast forward uh, almost 800 years to the time of Joseph. And this is our second story of crisis. Joseph is a good guy. He is betrothed to Mary. And that means as they are not married yet, they don't have the benefits of marriage yet. But they are in a formal contract that they would have to get a divorce in order to end the relationship. So they're in this in-between period where they have taken pledge, they have taken vows to each other that are unbreakable, but they are not married yet, um, and they have to wait. And he finds out um, with a really clever clever phrase here, um, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, which tends to say that enough time has gone past that is starting to become noticeable um, that she has a child inside of her, that this has been alerted. And if you are a groom and you are in this expectation period of what is to come, excited about your new bride, and then you get this news that there's been an oops um, in the way. And not only would that be personally hurtful to you, because of the betrayal, but you have to rethink all of your future plans. But in addition to that, you have to figure out a solution of what to do about it. Because it's not enough just to sit in grief, he still has to take action and he has to come up with a plan. And he comes up with a fairly clever plan. When it says that he is a just man, this means that he is trying to maintain his obligation to keep the law. That's what the word underneath is bringing us to think. And at the same time, he is trying to um, take care of Mary as best as possible and keep her from being put to shame. He feels obligated because of the law that this marriage can't go forward because of what has happened, and I have to keep that. But because he's also a decent guy, he's trying trying to protect Mary at the same time. He has a crisis that he has to manage that he was unprepared for, 
and that he doesn't know what to do, and he has to, in the middle of grief, use whatever resources he has in order to figure this thing out on his own. And this obviously is a a completely different situation, which we're going to address here in a little bit. But before that, I want us to sit a little bit in that here's two stories that are linked together here that are of people who have been led to a situation of crisis where they have to do something that is beyond their resources um, to do. They have to make decisions that are big kid decisions um, that they're doing in the face of great disappointment. And this is something that is all over the pages of the Bible. If we go further, there are people after people after people that we can name that had similar things happen to them. So what do we learn from this? Two stories, uh, now two reflections on these stories. One observation is this. The life of faith is played out in real events, in real time, having to make real decisions, take care of real things. It is not the case that the life of faith is just something that we do on the inside, where we try to establish an emotional harmony, where everything feels right. It is not the case where we sit and stare out a window and think pious thoughts. The life of faith actually involves taking action in the real world in really tangible ways. For King Ahaz, it meant making decisions on how to rule the people in a way that would take care of them and in a way that would actually lead them in faithfulness. For Joseph, he had to make decisions on what to do with this unplanned pregnancy. He had to decide how to take care of Mary. He had to decide what is the right thing to do in this situation when it was a little bit murky. And this is something that I think is important to just sit down in and to think about. Because when crisis comes, you can't quit. You can't just turn the game off and that didn't go right, quit and start over. And let's go at it in a new way and hopefully a better thing will go next time. It's going to keep going. And there are decisions that are going to have to be made. There are things that are going to have to be managed and taken care of with it as it is. And all of these tangible things are part of what it means to walk by faith. It is the outside of us and the inside of us moving together. It is not just an interior state. When we get diagnoses, we have to discuss treatments and figure out how to care for ourselves or for our loved ones. In our relationships, confrontations have to actually happen at times. Words have to be said. Conversations have to happen that might be uncomfortable. All kinds of decisions, like I keep saying, just big life decisions. What is the right thing to do here? We might not know. Those are part of what it means to walk by faith. Sin actually has to be acknowledged and confessed and relationship repaired in appropriate and wise way. The life of faith is lived out, not apart from real life, but right in the middle of it in real events. And there is no other way around it. It has always been that way. Second observation here. 
God always has an agenda in whatever crisis that he brings. And it is not always the same agenda that we have when we are in the middle of the crisis. We get a clue here um, what he says about Jesus. Um, When we think about ourselves as the audience who would be reading this first, um, a collection of pious people seeking to keep the law and to justify themselves so that uh, a warrior king would come and set us free. Verse 21, the angel says that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That there is a deeper problem here that has to be addressed that might not be the problem that is on the surface that we might want to look at. For Ahaz, he was concerned with saving his own backside and keeping his kingdom from being taken over. God was concerned that his Davidic line would continue. So the promises that were given to it would be carried to generation to generation to generation so that they would would be fulfilled for his people. God always has an agenda in crisis. He is always pulling the strings. He is always behind it. He always has it perfectly in control. And he has a reason. But that reason is not always the reason we want it to be. And sometimes we might not know what that is. It could look like a a variety of ways. Sometimes they're geared towards to show us what is inside as we respond to crises to show us the selfish uh, motivations and intentions that are there underneath, the attempts of control in ways that are actually impossible, that we are leaning on, that will never help. Sometimes it is a revealing activity to be in crisis. Sometimes it is in community situations, it is to draw us to see how often we like to point the blame at other people and why our relationships continue to break down. And yet, perhaps it might be an invitation to look at ourselves, at our own role, in that also. We have the building attributes, trust, patience, long-suffering, these attributes that take time and that take struggle in order for them to bear fruit in our lives. Sometimes we have deep questions that we want God to answer so that we can feel at peace even in our faith. And sometimes God's intention is not to answer all of our questions, but to draw us in to the infinite infinity of who he is in his own power and control. There are motivations of the heart that are always underneath, going on in any crisis. And the common thing is that when our groove is thrown off, then the attempts to cover them up tend to become more and more difficult And so they have to come out. We have to see them for what they are, and we have to pay attention. The life of faith is played out in real events. God always has an agenda behind them, as we see in these events. But that agenda is often different from ours. And we have an opportunity to seek him and to pay attention and to ask what he might be up to. That's two stories and two reflections. So we're here moving to the end that we are, um, the central aspect of this passage, of course, is the birth of the son Jesus, who is the king of crisis. And I really liked the title of that point, because if there is one commonality we see 
um, tracing, um, when we trace God's work with his people through the Bible, it is that God is not afraid in any ways of crisis. This does not mean that he is mean, and this does not mean that he just delights in causing us pain. But it does mean that crisis is again and again and again one of the things that he uses to bring us back to himself. So we can have something and taste something that is far deeper than we would ever arrive at on our own. And we see that here in Joseph's life, that he is given a great gift to be the father of the Son of God, but what that means for him is that he will be the subject of public shame. He has to go through this emotional process of what in the world is going on here. Um, He will have a rather interesting life from this point uh, because of this gift that God is giving him. However, this story is the answer to what happened way back with Ahaz in his crisis. And it's the way that God takes care of Joseph, Joseph and Mary through, this, through their crisis is something that is very unique and that is very special. Because like we said in the beginning, we are all walking around dealing with these things that are beyond what we can do, beyond what we can keep together, beyond what we can, mar- we can manage. But rather than sit back from afar and shout words of instructions on what we should do better, uh, how we can improve ourselves and improve our lives. What God gives is a great gift is that of himself. And that is, he takes on the flesh and the body and the life experience by entering into the world that he created. is the same world that you and I walk around in every day. He says, this is going to be mine. I'm going to, the one who created all of this, I'm actually going to step inside of it as part of it so that he cannot be the God who is far away, who is separate, who is distant in crisis, but he can be the God who knows deeply and who is right there in the middle of it. And this leads us to to ask this question, um, which we are often led in Scripture to ask, is that is it better that we have a God who is far away who we can just ask to take care of this or that? Or is it better to have God himself with us and inside of us, right in the middle of the crisis with us? And this is something that is challenging us and asking us um, to consider what that means. That the incarnate Son of God has become one of us. He has stepped into our crisis in order to transform it from the inside out. That he has given us a closeness with himself as a solution to the crisis. It's a presence that we always have with us that we can call out to. It is a person that we have to relate to, that we always have reassurance that we are not alone, but he is with us. And beyond that, he is the son of God in taking on flesh, in taking on sin, that was able to step inside of our existence. And so what we will get to in chapter 3, which will be the passage that we stop um, in this series, that the Holy Spirit would come down on like a dove. And so God could look at him and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is the perfect form of God who lived through navigating how to avoid death by mobs, how to control mobs, how to deal with all kinds of um, persecution and difficult situations. 
and who did it in a way where he, he did it in a way that pleased his father. That this is my beloved son. This is what it means to live by faith. And he did that for us. So that the same spirit that was given to us, that was also in Jesus, that God could look down on us, even in the middle of the crisis, not knowing what to do, and say, this is my son, this is my daughter, the one in whom I am well pleased. I am with you in the middle of this. And this is the important thing. This is the beginning of this gift, uh, this story of the incarnation. And Matthew's agenda here for us to consider is the personal identity of who this child is. This is the first of five proofs where he is arguing that this random guy from Nazareth, that no prophecy mentioned Nazareth or anything else, is actually the one in the line of David who was born in Bethlehem, just like they all said. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one we have all been waiting for. And what was at risk for Matthew's audience was that they would go about their lives managing what they had and that they would miss who this was. That in the name of keeping it together, that they would miss the identity of the gift that was given in this little baby, in the Son of God who took on flesh. And I want to close by giving this illustration. Um, At a previous church Lauren and I were at, which... Um, I won't name. It was a great church. Lauren was uh, down in the basement searching through some costume stuff that was being given away. It was a random collection of just clothes and shoes and hats and whatever that people over the years had given away and put in this box. Um, And they were, um, whoever was in charge was letting Lauren rummage through these things. But she ended up finding a ring that did not look fake. Um, And as she looked at it, she figured out that it was a gold ring with five diamonds on it. And they were mine-cut diamonds. I don't know if you know what those are, but they were old, turn of the century, and they were cut in a rather unusual way. And they were the real thing. Like, this was a real and a really old ring that someone had thrown away, um, had just given as a part of the costume jewelry. Um, and it was quite a find. And the irony was that when she brought it to the person in charge, her response was, oh, this is great. Not, she did not say, oh, this is a beautiful ring. She's like, oh, this is great. Maybe now we can buy a new air conditioner for the church. <laughs> but I, that's just, I think that strikes me as an analogy about what Matthew is trying to get us to see in the middle of all the stuff, the junk that we're just keeping track of in our lives, stuff that's useful for this situation, that situation, or whatever, that this gift here would just be one of the things in the box that's just in there to be used at its own time, um, but it is just like everything else. When in reality, his attempt at proving is that this baby, even if he is not the thing that we have hoped for, or that we even recognize why we need so badly. But this is of something of incomparable value compared to all the other stuff. It is not something to just be tried on in a moment and then kicked off and discarded later. But this is a precious gift. And what's at stake for us 
as well, is that we will also be so busy managing that we will miss the gift uh, that we have been given, that we get to celebrate this time of year in the person of Jesus. And if I have to leave you with one moral, the moral of that story is don't sell your soul just to buy a new air conditioner. But this is, uh, this is a great gift that we have the pleasure of celebrating and of noticing here in this passage. So let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that when we were lost, you sent him to us. Thank you that you hold on to us even when we don't recognize the true value of that. But I pray that as we grapple with this, that you would work in your spirit, that you would humble us, you would cause us to cry out to him, and that through all of the things that we have to do and take care of in our our lives, that you would help us to trust, and you would tune our hearts that we can delight in the security of his presence with us and his power over whatever crisis we're in. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.